Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that is on the cycle of being sort of okayly introduced. When this episode goes out, it will be Indigenous Peoples Day. And so to, to talk about that more, we're, we're going to talk to Dahlia Kilsback, who is a member of the Northern Cheyenne, or has uh, Northern Cheyenne Tribal Citizenship, and has sort of studied and worked in federal Indian tribal policy. Dahlia, hello. How, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you um, for inviting me here today. Of course, Garrison is also here. Garrison, hello. Hello. I'm I'm currently also doing writing about indigenous stuff, but within the context of Canada, which you people should will probably hear later this week. Um, so yeah, I guess first thing I wanted to talk about is a little bit is about what Indigenous Peoples Day is and why it is that and not the other thing. Um, yeah, so Indigenous Peoples Day, um, as many people know, is replacing, I'm going to say it, Chris, Christopher <laughs> Columbus Day. Um, that is still like a federal holiday, but some, multiple cities and states have opted to use Indigenous Peoples Day instead. Um, and the reasoning for that is acknowledging the atrocities that were committed by Christopher Columbus, who, um, first of all, did not discover America, um, but um, continued to um, not only use slavery, but um, commit different forms of genocide, rape, etc., all of these terrible atrocities. And so rather than celebrating um, somebody like that, um, Indigenous Peoples Day um, has been implemented in order to recognize the people who are actually here first. Um, and Indigenous peoples across the Americas, their um, histories, um, cultures, and contributions. Yeah, Columbus, real piece of shit. Worst Christopher. Like, (laughs) yeah, it really cannot be overstated how bad that guy was. 
even even you know even people in that era who had committed their own genocides like Isabel and Ferdinand who you know expelled yeah. the Jews from Spain where it's like like it, you know if, if if once you've reached the sentence expelled the Jews from X like you're you are you're already in the the, the 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 shit list of the worst people in human history and even they saw what Columbus was doing it was like what on earth bad bad guy bad name things are going to continue to go badly and yeah that that was another thing that that I I wanted to talk about which is federal indian policy and you know this, this is an incredibly broad this is an incredibly broad area spanning like 300 years so we're not gonna be able to go into like an enormous amount of depth in it but i think it's important that people have an understanding of i mean a just what the u.s did and how everyone else has had this sort of deal with it and then also the fact that this is something that changes over time and has has looked different. It's looked it's been bad in different ways. Yeah. Um, and so when talking about federal Indian policy, um, I always like to contextualize it within a larger um, sort of like Euro um, American like teleology of colonial conquests, and then moving on to settler colonialism and where we are with federal federal Indian policy policy currently. Um, So how do we connect Christopher Columbus to where we are currently? Um, And this is the history of federal Indian policy and Western legal discourse and how um, European powers throughout history have defined what it means to be an Indian person in relationship to Um, Indigenous peoples' rights to their own land and to self-governance. So when we're looking at the different periods of federal Indian policy, um, prior to there being a United States government, we have the colonial period, um, which is 1492 to 1776. Um, This is how federal Indian policy legal scholars divide that. Um, And it's really important to kind of give the difference between what is um, a colonial state versus a settler colonial state when you're talking about not just the United States government, but also the Canadian government and um, different governments globally. Um, But I want to talk just a little bit about um, what I mean by the difference between a colonial government and a settler colonial government, um, because they're tied together. Um, So by a settler colonial government, I mean, what I mean is that um, it is defined by the deterritorialization of indigenous populations. And so rather than in a colonial government, as you had with Christopher Columbus and the Spanish and with the English, et cetera, um, is rather than a state and sovereignty being conceived as all these resources are going back to the metropole. All these resources are going back to England or to Spain, et cetera. And colonial occupation is in is um, conceptualized within this way in settler colonial governments. Um, the colonists come to these lands and stay and they're, what they define as sovereignty is within this land that they define now as their own. So, and in order for that process to happen, Um, there needs to be different forms of genocide of the indigenous populations. And so that's what we saw with Christopher Columbus and throughout history um, was just the depletion of a lot of our indigenous populace. Um, And so when I mean about the United States um, being a, a settler colonial state, I mean that this is current and ongoing. And so when we talk about federal Indian policy, um, federal Indian policy is always in this conversation with what started with Christopher Columbus as the doctrine of discovery. And um, so that's how we define the colonial period. And feel free to like stop me and ask me questions. Also, I'm just going to try to move quickly because there's a lot. Yeah. I I think we probably should briefly talk about what the the doctrine of discovery is, Mm -hmm. um, at least before we get to sort of the Marshall trilogy and stuff. For sure. Yeah, so what, what does that actually mean legally? Um, so legally, um, 
It's the discovery of a quote unquote newfound land um, by European colonial forces. And the reason why it's called the doctrine of discovery was that indigenous peoples on these lands were deemed unable to govern themselves and they did not know how to utilize their land up to the definition of what the U European powers thought it, um, land use was. That um, indigenous peoples didn't have the same concept of property um, and same with uh, to their relationship with um, resources and resource extraction. So when um, Christopher Columbus and all of these other colonizers, conquistadors came to the quote unquote new land, um, they saw all of this rich, plentiful resource and thought to themselves, well, obviously these people don't know what they're doing because there's just so much, they have not done anything with it. Um, and we're going to take this back to two hours because obviously they're inferior beings and don't know what property is. So um, legally, um, it, it, the doctrine of discovery conveyed legal title to and ownership of American soil to European nations, um, a title that devolved to the United States. And so um, this definition is expansive um, and expansive discovery implies that native nations have a right to lands as occupants or possessors, but they are incompetent to manage those lands and need a quote unquote benevolent guardian, such as a federal government who holds legal title. And um, so when we're talking about this legal title, it devolves to the United States later on um, in history after the American Revolution. Um, and so rather than being colonial states um, as the United States, like 13 original colonies, given um, the American Revolution and its own constitution and its creation of itself as a nation state, then that turns into a settler colonial government. Yeah, and I think we can, yeah, we can get to what happens next then, because yeah, yeah, you, you have you have this elaborate legal framework that lets you steal people's land and murder them and then control it. And mm -hmm. then the outgrowth of that is this sort of weird event where the, the colonies go into rebellion and suddenly, yeah, there's, there's not a colony. They're not colonies anymore. They just are the state. And so, yeah, talk about what happens next after the sort of formation of the United States. So after the formation of the United States, um, so we have this period, the American Revolution, which I'll not really dive that into is 1776 to 1789 and it's called the confederation period but next we have the trade and intercourse act era which is from 1789 to 1835 and so this is defined with the united states constitution and congress's exclusive right to regulate trade relations and make lands and land secessions and enter into treaties with tribes so this is a um treaty making era with the tribes that only the United States federal government is able to. And there's a distinction there because there had been a lot of contestation between states and the federal government as to who is going to now deal with these, um, these nations that are with our, within our own settler colonial borders. So whose job is, is that to solve this issue? Um, so within the United States Constitution, there are three clauses that define the United States legal relationship to American Indians. And so these are the treaty making clause, the commerce clause and the property clause. Um, and so this this movement from just relying on the doctrine of discovery and treaty making processes between different European powers now is between the United States federal government and tribes. And so what this does is now tribes are um, located within the United States territory, and this places Indians within the boundaries and jurisdiction of the United States, and now they're a matter of domestic interest. Something that leads it to one of the sort of complicated questions that, that changes through this whole era, which is about what does sovereignty mean for these tribes, and I mean, to what extent do they even 
continue to possess it? And how does that even sort of, you know, how, how does that work if you ha- when you have this new state that sort of just has, has claimed control here? Right. And also during this period, um, well, well, later on when we have, um, sorry, jumping ahead of myself, when we have the extermination of the treaty making mm-hmm. process, and this completely um, removes seeing tribes as independent sovereign nations. Um, so I think that we'll kind of get more into that later. But the thing with federal Indian policy um, is that it's sort of self prophesizing. So as settlers are moving across America, um, the United States government also has to create these policies um, in order to legalize Mm. these land cessations and movements. And a pattern that we do see here um, throughout history and throughout time is that the United States federal government as a settler state is um, over the rights of, over the um, rights to land and rights of indigenous peoples themselves, you have a priority of the settler state in order to acquire land. So a lot of the reason why um, later these treaties will be broken, et cetera, is because settlers are moving into these lands and the United States is then breaking these treaties in order to um, have more more land, more land secessions. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. the, the law, the law, is sort of just following the violence, and it just becomes a sort of retroactive justification for yes, just yeah, taking everything. It's it's a self justifying sort of sovereignty. Yeah. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you, but consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. 
Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. So this is the removal period and what a lot of people may have heard of. So it's from 1835 to 1861. And what we have is the extinguishment of Indian title to Eastern lands and the removal of Indian tribes westward. So um, one of the most notable acts is the Removal Act, which was authorized by President Andrew Jackson, which moved um, Indians from the east to the west of the Mississippi River into what is was called Indian Territory. Um, and what brought about this um, federal, federal act um, was a series of three foundational statutes within federal Indian policy um, dictated by Chief Justice John Marshall. So first we have Johnson v. McIntosh, Cherokee Nation v. Georgia, and Worcester v. Georgia. And I won't go into um, too much detail, but what this these essentially um, did and legally defined tribes as being domestic dependent nations. And so it clarified more that, again, tribal nations are underneath the federal government's overview, not the states. So yeah, it placed tribes above state jurisdiction. And what this was trying to do was um, solve some issues that tribes such as the Cherokee Nation had with different states when it came to land and um, jurisdiction over said land. Um, but that is kind of the basis of a lot of federal Indian policy and still remains truth day. And what is notable um, in each one of these statutes, um, I believe particularly in Worcester v. Georgia, although it seems that it was supporting tribal sovereignty and then in that they were above state jurisdiction a lot of these um statutes cited racist president and the doctrine of discovery so uh, what you see for federal indian policy is that a lot of the found well all the foundation for <laughs> federal indian policy based on president is the doctrine of discovery which is reliant on the idea that um, american indians were savages and needed um federal benevolence and um, paternalism in order to regulate their own affairs. Yeah, and I think that's, well, okay, we should probably not just immediately get to allotment, but yeah, because there's, 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 there's also, yeah, th this is also the period we used, yeah, the thing you were talking about earlier, the thing you probably know about, which is, okay, it's, it's not true to say this is when this starts, but this is Indian Removal Act, Trail of Tears territory, and yeah, one one thing you know, I think one one of the sort of running themes of this is that, you know, the 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 law in this context is just sort of it becomes a sort of retroactive excuse to do whatever, like needs to be done from the perspective, quote unquote, of of the sort of of the settler state to just take all of this land. Yeah, and I think maybe like one of the keystones of this is Andrew Jackson just straight up telling the Supreme Court to fuck off. So that he can do, so he can do a trail of tears. Yeah. Um, so the removal act um, happened after all of these statutes that you already had that supported um, federal Indian sovereignty, and so the Cherokees in Georgia were one of the tribes that were removed. Um, and so you kind of see what you talked about the the retrograde kind of justifications for said removal, despite um, the statutes that are there. So although that like Marshall um, in Worcester v. Georgia determined that the state of Georgia did not have jurisdiction over Cherokee territory, all this ter although this territory was in the state's borders, um, later on you see with the Removal Act that um, although these statutes are still precedent in federal Indian policy. Those were null in order for um, there to be more um, expansion of settlers within these areas. 
So when it was decided that, oh, wait, we do need this land and we don't actually want these Indians here, let's put them to the side over past the Mississippi so that they're out of sight, out of mind, right? So we see more of this um, justification for settler expansion. And so again, we bring it back to these themes of like settler colonialism in order to um, kind of gain more of this land. And a lot of these statutes are still cited the doctrine of discovery in them. And rather than supporting tribal policy, the relationship between the United States federal government and American Indians um, was not based on the rights of Indians, but more that they can't they can't govern themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And so so and that's the whole issue is like people are like, they don't know what they're doing. So we're gonna push them and like take their land again. So I I don't know if you want me to go too much into the Trail of Tears, but um, you're seeing a lot of patterns here. <laughs> I think different forms of genocide, yeah. different forms of taking land. And this was this is all around the same time as the Indian Act in Canada as well, which was did a very similar thing, um, especially starting in the 1900s. It's starting in the 20th century as well with the uh, like expansion of the like assimilation programs. Yeah, and I think I guess the, the one other thing I want to point out about this is that you know, so one of one of the things that happens with Trail of Tears is that the Supreme Court like tells Jackson that he can't do this, and Jackson just does it anyways. And I think that's a, a very interesting, important moment because you know th- this is this is this thing right where the federal government can tell the Supreme Court to fuck off, right? And there's nothing the Supreme Court could do about it. And if you look at what they did it to do, the thing they did it to do was genocide. And it's, I think it's, it's just, I think this is very sort of, I don't know, this incredibly grim, like, you know, encapsulation of like what this state actually is, which is this sort of genocide machine and whatever sort of, you know, this is what sovereignty is, right? It's the ability to break your own rules in order to sort of maintain, in order to maintain the system. So you, you, you know, you, you break your own laws and, you know, as, as we're going to get to in a, in a second, like you break your own treaties continuously and you do this because, you know, the genocide machine has to keep moving. Right. And, um... There's a couple of federal Indian policy theorists, um, Bindler Jr., who's one of the most famous ones, and David E. Wilkins, who talks about how there's no need for checks and balances within the federal Indian policy system. So you have Congress that is able to um, pass whatever act they want, and and then you also have the Supreme Court, and then you also have executive action, but it wasn't really delineated that well um, within, um, especially when it comes to this period as to who is going to be dealing with the Indians kind of thing. Um, And so this kind of confusion and not really completely defining what it means to be a domestic dependent nation, I think really just goes to show how uh, much of a fragile edifice like set, yeah. settler um, colonial policy is for it is within the system. Um, but again, moving on, it comes back again to land. So the reservation area era in 1861 to 1887 um, has you have a lot of westward expansion of non-Indians um, settlers. Specifically to California, you also have the creation of Indian reservations and resulting Indian wars. Um, uh, So during this era, what you see a lot of um, are different types of attempts at assimilation um, and a lot of warfare. So you have a lot of the Plains tribes, my tribe, for instance, um, that are going through all of these battles, fighting um, forced removal onto reservations. Um, one of the most famous ones was um, the Battle of Greasy Grass or the Little Bighorn, um, where General Custer was killed by Sioux, Cheyennes, and Arapahoes, and different instances of battles such as those, and also where a lot of tribes. Um, were forcibly removed to areas that they weren't originally from. So like how the Cherokees were moved to Oklahoma, there was attempts of my tribe, for instance, Northern Cheyenne, to be moved down to Oklahoma as well. And that's why there's some 
Southern Cheyennes in Oklahoma, and then my tribe, the Northern Cheyennes in Montana. Um, another um, in another thing that is happening during this period are boarding schools, um, the boarding school era. So this attempt at assimilation through education, um, and assimilation is also um, within within the settler colonial kind of structure. It's it's defined as a process where indigenous people end up. Um, conforming to different constructed notions of um, settler norms. Um, so if they're not absorbed within the state completely, then they're attempted attempt to be assimilated um, culturally, um, through education, through languages, in terms of economics. So now you have a bunch of different sort of bureaucratic structures on these reservations trying to make tribal governments appear to be um, or constructed as as settler colonial governments are. Um, so maybe it's the three branches um, in ways that aren't just compatible with different tribes culturally. And you also have the attempted eradication of different kind of spiritual and cultural practices and a lot of Christianity um, yeah. being forced onto different people yeah. and just kind of terrible things that um, I think more and more people are becoming aware of due to due to current movements. But we'll we'll get into that more later. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Do we want to talk about allotment briefly? Because if I remember correctly, this is in the same period. Yes, allotment period and um, forced assimilation. So this is like 1871 to 1934. And so this is the end of the treaty making process. So the whole idea of um, trying to force tribes onto reservations and sign these treaties were to again, take land and make sure that the United States has more land and all the land, et cetera, that they could possibly have. Um, so at this end of treaty making, um, 
a federal allotment of Indian lands also happened in the um, the Dawes Act. Um, and so what this was, was an attempt to um, further uh, shrink the, the reservation lands that tribes are already guaranteed within treaties. Um, so during this period, I think the, somewhere like 9 million acres were um, taken from tribal reservations during the allotment process. So the, what the allotment process did was it counted each and every individual Indian um, that was eligible. I think there were adults, uh, um, yeah, adults that were eligible um, and each one of them were given a certain parcel of land, a certain number of acreage. Um, and once all of this land was calculated, what you had was an excess of land, quote unquote, excess of land that the tribes obviously didn't need because they had still yeah. too, too many people. And so what the excess of land um, was utilized for is for pioneers and for settlers. Um, if it didn't go um, to the federal government, it was to um, incentivize settlers to colonize, essentially settle yeah. on um, Indian lands. So trying its hardest to not stay true to its treaty-making practices. I think the other thing that was interesting to me about this is that like – because one of the other goals of this is to sort of like, ooh, is the civilizing mission. It's like, yeah, we're going to turn them into, we're going to turn all these people into like, like, like yeoman farmers, like true American frontiersmen or whatever. And it's just like, it just doesn't work because economically that doesn't make any sense. Like you, you breaking up all these like lands is like, it doesn't, you, you can't just give someone like a small patch of like shitty land and have them farm. Like this doesn't, like this, it doesn't, it doesn't, it like, they certainly just, tried. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that was the, one, one of the main thing. One of the main things in Canada was about getting them to adopt like uh, like European farming practices. Yeah, which, which they 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 already knew how to like get their own food, right? They were trying to change this whole system of 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 like of, of food growth to to this like to to this European way of of farming, and it just and they were just forcing them to. And there's yeah, it's it's. It, yeah, it's, it gets it gets it gets super it gets super like dark and horrible once you like look at like the letters that were being written by like the heads of these programs, um, like you know instructing like these agents who were stationed at these like reservations to like force people to be doing doing this horrible farming for like all day every day. And, and I think you know the, the 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 sign that this was like like this is. Like, this is so bad that even the U.S. government eventually is like, wait, this, this, like, this is fucked up and doesn't work. So I think that's yeah. We transition to sort of like the next phase, I guess. Of yeah, a very process. short phase. Um, yeah. yeah. So the next phase um, is the Indian Reorganization Act, and so this only lasted six years from 1934 to 1940. Um, so this is when allotment ended, as you said, the United States government was like, wait, this isn't working. Um, what else can we we do? The Indians aren't dying off. They're not assimilating. They're not acculturating. We don't know what to do with them. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll have them adopt these constitutions. And a lot of them were just templates. So regardless of whether or not they were, um, I think compatible with tribal different tribes way of life they were like you have these constitutions now um now you're you're a tribe and this is what each tribe has to look like in order for us the federal government to recognize you as a legitimate entity uh, and um and then so you have the establishment of these um tribal governments that consist of tribal councils and big business committees etc however this period is fleeting, very fleeting. Yeah. Um, and next, um, you have the termination era. So this is the period of time where the federal government essentially, even more so, wants to just get rid of the quote-unquote Indian problem, which is the existence of Indigenous peoples um, that are reminders 
to the government essentially that um, they are a settler colonial force and they don't know what to do with us because they tried to commit genocide, they tried to remove us, et cetera, et cetera. It's still not working. Um, they decided that our tribal governments um, aren't aren't legitimate and they just decide, well, it's too much to try to keep up with our treaties and what we promise them when it comes to healthcare, education, housing, et cetera, et cetera. How about we terminate our federal responsibility, our trust responsibility that are delineated in federal Indian policy and in our treaties um, and give them off to to the states to decide what to do with. And so during this period, you see um, sort of the the federal um, dissolution of some tribes such as the Menomini and other ones um, as well. So this is, another dark time, the, the dark times just keep on coming. And what federal Indian policy scholars have um, char- characterized federal Indian policy as a pendulum. So swing, swinging from side to side between this termin- this uh, termination of tribes. So the federal Indian government as trying to get rid of tribes, especially as you can see in this era, and then the pendulum of the other side is self-determination, but both of these are held within the context of goals of assimilation. So um, this is just another phase of terribleness. Yep. Well, I think this this phase also, like one thing I think that also like is important people understand is that like, like it's not like people aren't fighting this like the whole time. I mean, even going like even going back to the stuff of the Seventh Cavalry, like the Seventh Cavalry lose like boars, they lose battles all the time. People are fighting constantly, and this is this period, the termination period, is also where you see the uh, the, the the rise of the American Indian movements. Yeah, a lot of these periods can be like dove into more, and all of these different things. Um, in every instance, in every instance of federal Indian policy, you have resistance, which we're not covering here right now. Um, but you have instances um, throughout history where indigenous peoples have fought for their rights to land, to um, for their community, to being sovereign nations, etc. And that's why the federal Indian, the federal government, not federal Indian government, the federal government has not been able to eradicate us much to their dismay. Um, uh, And so now I'm going to switch into the era that we are considered to be in, which I had mentioned when I talked about the pendulum of federal Indian policy. So now we are in the self-determination era, um, which began in 1962. um, And we have um, the right, it's characterized with the revitalization of tribal entities. So um, going kind of back to when there was the Indian Reorganization Act. So we have our tribal councils. Um, There's restoration of some tribes under federal recognition who were terminated. Again, not all of them. We also have the Indian Civil Rights Act. So this this kind of uh, guaranteed individual Indians um, some rights, um, not just characterized by their tribes, also the self-determination policy. So this is when um, Nixon condemned the termination policy and gave more control to Indians rather than the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which was a federal bureau. And just kind of like other policies that um, have given the tribes more rights to um, determine for themselves and their own tri- their own people um, to a certain degree underneath the federal government as domestic dependent nations. And again, I I think that we have seen a lot more movement, but within the context of being within a settler colonial state. Um, it's always, I think, a possibility that the the federal Indian government or the federal government, I keep saying Indian, uh, <laughs> the federal government will try um, to take more and more. And I think, um, for instance, when it comes to issues of fishing rights, issues of um, hunting rights with states, not even just with the federal government. So you have a lot of states throughout 
throughout history, but still ongoing, um, that attempt to encroach on um, tribal treaties. Um, and again, treaties are the basis of federal Indian policy. Without these treaties, the lands would have never been seceded to the United States. And so um, there's this, this sort of like legal legal conundrum, I would say, of where um, all these all treaties in the history of the United States with Indi with Indian tribes have been broken in some way, shape, or form. Um, but still, um, Amer American Indians have to live on their reservations instead of having their their land back. And so nowadays, a lot of movement has been towards um, land back, what this means, what is this process? And I think it means a lot of different things for different people, indigenous people, um, because again, there's, there's 574 federally recognized tribes. And so it's not one monolith of ideas, a monolith of, yeah. of beliefs, but by just by saying land back, that's like recognition that this is our, this was our land first and you're not keeping your side of the deal and never have been. Could you maybe go a bit more into land back as a topic? Because like specifically like the past five years, it has really gained a lot more like um, uh, popularity as like a slogan. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But I think for a lot of a lot of people who like chant it and hear it don't always really know exactly what it means. There's a lot of like mixed opinions on what it means. Um of course, on like the more like reactionary side, it's like people will be like, "What? You're gonna like kick white people out of these areas?" Like that's kind of that's what a lot of like the reactionary takes on land back is. Um, and I'm sure most people who are listening to this podcast, that's not what they think. Um, but they may not really know exactly what it means either. Um, they may think it sounds like a, a good idea, but they're not quite sure what it is. Do you mind kind of talking about how land back has like developed as as an idea and? What like what like you mean by it personally, at least? Yeah, I think I could talk about more about like what I mean by it personally and what I've understood it to mean to other people, um, because I think um, land back itself it means like a lot of different things, and I don't think that there has been a concrete kind of idea of what it means. But I think a lot of the movement, I want to like contextualize it within a lot of the um, sort of act activism that we've seen in the recent years. Um, so for instance, you know, DAPL, the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2016, and kind of, I think that's one of the more recent events that have really illustrated on a wide scale, like globally about um, indigenous movements um, sovereign movements and especially when it comes to environmental justice but what you saw there was encroachment on tribal treaty land within um, the, when it had to do with the Dakota Access Pipeline um, so although it didn't cross some of the current reservation borders it was in treaty land you know yeah, that same, kind of thing same, yeah. same same thing with stop line 3 how it, it it encroached on like the hunting land and the farmland that was not technically in the like residential like like um like uh, like not in like the reservation area where people live but it's in the surrounding area that is for hunting that is specified in the treaty so right. people are trying to use these like loopholes to get the pipelines through Right, right. And so I think what you see is a lot of um, solidarity across tribes, because this is not new. This has never been new. And a lot of tribes can relate to that. And what you've seen and what I hope that I've highlighted throughout this kind of very brief overview of federal Indian policy is the different ways that Indigenous rights to land and sovereignty has been attacked in different forms by settler and colonial governments. Um, and I think that the day and age that we live in now has allowed for um, sort of more widespread solidarity, especially over social media. Um, and so when we say land back, for me, how I interpret it as what people mean when they're saying it is recognition of our tribal sovereignty, of our right to this land that has not been respected. And then I also think that it means 
well, if these treaties aren't being respected, then how is this treaty still um, valid, right? How come we aren't getting our land back because you're not upholding your end of the deal? Well, some people also might mean and recognize that this whole United States government is a settler state, right? Based on the doctrine of discovery, which is based on um, denying tribes and American Indians of their rights to this land. Um, so some people might take it to this whole other context of, yeah, well, maybe this is this is all of our land, et cetera, et cetera. But in practice, what does this look like? And I think in practice, a lot of people um, are seeing it with um, reparations or people buying land back for tribes and giving it back to tribes. And we have seen some of that or um, also just people interrupting the narrative um, in their own mind of their Euro-American identity. So non-American non, um, Indians and primarily European settlers and their history of their own families taking part of the settler colonial process. And how has that, um, what about their lands? There's all, everyone who um, descends, I guess, from these, these settlers. And I wanna be specific when I'm talking about Euro-American settlers um, um, and how they currently benefit from these systems. And I think by saying land back, um, it's, we're able to highlight this movement for tribal sovereignty and recognition on a global scale, instead of searching for justice within the quote unquote, like um, searching for justice within the courts of the conqueror. How, how do we expect um, for the conqueror to be held accountable for all of these atrocities, attempts at genocide, assimilation, et cetera, by taking it more towards a global scale, such as No Dapple, highlighting these to other people as these are injustices. Um, this is this is ongoing genocide. I think that land back has many like a plethora of meanings in the, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. I hope that answers your question. I myself um, might use it in in some some different ways um, because land, as we conceive it to be property, kind of grew that concept grew in conversation with Euro-American. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Conceptions of property. So I think that um, moving forward, when we talk about decolonization as a process and not like a metaphor, um, that thinking of land back, not within that whole idea of Euro-American property as well, that's, that's kind of another thing um, to consider. Yeah. I think, I think land back will just be a whole other thing that will pay someone more qualified than our team to talk about on yeah. this show um because yeah that's definitely like, you know like all of the things we've we've discussed they deserve their own deep dives by people that are uh not me robert and chris um let's see is is there any kind of resources either books or stuff online that you would recommend for people wanting to learn more about this history um, and then any kind of ways to, I don't know, I guess show support in these, in these kind of like efforts that are going on. Yeah, for sure. Um, so in terms of resources and reading, um, I have read Lorenzo Veracini's um, settler book on settler colonialism. Um, that's really helpful when you're trying to understand that framework um, in terms of getting to know kind of more of the basics of like current um, issues impacting tribes. Um, the Na National Congress of American Indians does a lot of work on the federal level. Um, if you wanna talk more about um, kind of lived current lived experiences of American Indians, there's Illuminatives um, and getting more in involved in those as well. I think that they have some tips but I would recommend um, everyone getting more familiar with the land that they are on currently, the tribes within their state and what they can do um, not just on the local level, but on the state level to support tribal sovereignty. Um, because a lot of issues uh, 
for instance, I worked um, on this on the state policy level in Washington and in Montana, and both of those have a significant amount of tribes. Um, but you have a lot of legislation that's trying to happen that infringes on tribal treaty rights. And the thing is, is um, as ugly as it may be to say, but sometimes voices of <laughs> non-Indigenous peoples are listened to more within those um, contexts. So you need to get more involved on, on those levels, um, what sort of like ad, um, nonprofit organizations um, work with your tribes or and what sort of issues are impacting tribes. And again, these are all going to probably be surrounding tribal sovereignty. So maybe it's um, fishing access, hunting rights, et cetera. Um, I think that's a really good way to make some more pal um, tangible change to feel like you're doing yeah. something to support tribal sovereignty while you're also educating yourself and making sure that their voices are at the forefront. And that's also applicable to the federal level, um, especially with, as you already said, like stop line three in Minnesota, contacting your legislators, et cetera, et cetera. And I think also with, when it comes to one of, one of the larger issues besides um, environmental justice for indigenous peoples, such as pipelines, you have right now missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, so looking in, looking into that um, a little bit more and who you can support, who's addressing those issues along with, um, there is a, another movement with boarding schools right now um, because there's been a lot of um, bodies of young children um, that have been uncovered. And this is not an issue that happened a long, long time ago. Like for instance, my grandmother went to a boarding school. Um, there's still schools that, um, although they're not called boarding schools right now that were boarding schools, but are still in operation under different names, et cetera. Um, so kind of familiarizing yourself with those histories. And then also there's a um, national, uh, I think it's called the National Boarding School Healing Coalition based out of Minnesota and um, looking into them and supporting their efforts um, with this issue is also a good place to start. Um, is there anywhere that uh, people can find you online? Yes. <laughs> I don't I don't really use um social media that much. Good for um, you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I try not to. I don't know if I want people to find me. Okay. Do not yeah. <laughs> don't worries. don't do it. They probably better, can't find me. It's better but, not. It's yeah. it's better that people don't find anyone online. It's better we're all just just po posting into the void. There's nothing. No, mm -hmm. just just the void. Well, that uh, that is, I think, going to wrap up what we uh, have today. Chris, do you want to close us out with a funny bit? Uh, light your local gas station on fire. Wow. Well, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Killing it here. <laughs> oh, my God. Jeez. <laughs> wow. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 